Greetings and salutations. Uh, we're going to talk today about um, something. We're trying to find an argument among our uh, Anglicans, Lutherans, and Presbyterians. We've been way too kind, it seems. And so if we're so nice to each other, why aren't we in the same communion? Well, there are <laughs> reasons for that, obviously. And this may be an episode, too, where we can keep our Anglican friend quiet because we're going to talk about subscription to confessions, and we'll find out whether Anglicans actually pay any attention to the 39 articles, um, whereas Presbyterians and Lutherans have a reputation for being quite being sticklers about doctrine. Um, so we'll, we'll spend some time today talking about the different confessions that we have and the way our communions relate to them or, or hold to them. Uh, and we'll start with, so which our are our, our confessions. Um, and I guess in historical sequence, it might be good to turn to Dr. Moss first, um, who, since the Lutherans are the, the first Protestants. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, in, 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 I suppose in terms of historical sequence, maybe something like the Augsburg Confession would, would take chronological priority. Although Luther's uh, small catechism, for example, is written a year before that, and that makes its way into our confessional documents. Um, but we, we do have one, uh, our, our latest document uh, is the Formula of Concord, which is uh, 15, 1570. Um, so that, that, that's later than some of, some of the reformed documents. Um, but yeah, okay, so if, if you kind of pick up the Book of Concord, which is the, the compilation of Lutheran creeds and confessions. Uh, the, the first three things you'll find are, are the ecumenical creeds, so the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, and the so-called Athanasian Creed. Um, but then Augsburg Confession, uh, Philip Melanchthon's defense of or apology of the Augsburg Confession. Um, you've got the, the small and large catechisms written by Luther, um, the, the Schmall called articles. These are a, a brief doctrinal statement that was written in anticipation of an ecumenical council, which did, did not come to fruition, at least at that time. But later Lutherans liked the content well enough that they decided you know, we, we, should, we should keep these as a nice brief summary of our confession. Um, the, the very oddly titled for a Lutheran confession, a Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope. Um, which ultimately comes out and, and, and says it's not what you Catholics think it is. But nonetheless, that's the title, you know, the Treatise on the Power and Primacy of the Pope. Um, and then finally, I mentioned uh, the Formula of Concord. And, and we've, actually, we've actually got two versions of that. Um, we've got the, the, the kind of long version, and then we've got an abbreviated version that just sort of summarizes the highlights, um, and, and they're both included. And... Can you say just a little bit briefly about how um, these became, say, constitutional, legal, authoritative? Yeah. What, were there bodies along the way that decided this? Was there a faculty of theology, a certain place, was clergy in Wittenberg or? Right. Oh, yeah. So this is this. Yeah, this is a really good question. So uh, most of these kind of individual documents uh, arise. Um, as reactions to particular circumstances. So the Augsburg Confession is, is written because the emperor, Charles V, um, wants an account of what these Lutherans in his territory are teaching, uh, you know, in parts to decide whether or not uh, he should suppress them or tolerate them. So this, this starts as, as a kind of political document um, as, as much as a theological document. Uh, the small and large catechisms, again, very practical concerns, um, Luther realizes that yeah, we, we've been Lutheran for almost a decade now, and you know half of you have no idea what Lutheranism is. So you know, <laughs> here, here's about ten pages of summary, and then here's a slightly longer version that the parents and pastors can read as a, as a means of explaining the shorter summary. Um, but but yeah, when these things are originally written, you know. Nobody immediately says, ah, yeah, this is the sort of required confession. If you're going to call yourself Lutheran, you, you, you sign on to this somewhere. Um, that discussion in part happens um, 
through the middle of the 16th century, when various territories become Lutheran, and they ask themselves the question, you know, what, what should our preachers be required to preach um, and teach? And so there is a, a kind of mixed match of, of various documents. Um, and also, especially after Luther himself dies, um, a, a great deal of, of tension and contention between various Lutheran theologians, various uh, university faculties. And so that, that last document, the Formula of Concord, is kind of written to, to, to answer all of these debates that Lutherans themselves are having. And when that is written, um, it, it's deemed kind of useful enough to, to, to make a, a sort of final decision of you know, what of these previous documents mm. ought we to, to continue to, to read and consider as, 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 in some sense, binding definitions of what it means to be, to be Lutheran. And, and was that a church council that produced the Formula of Concord? Um, not exactly a church council, but it, yeah, it's, it's a series of meetings uh, between uh, clergy, theology faculties, uh, and, and, and I, I recall um, representatives of the various territorial princes. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that is probably obvious, but may be worth um, repeating, and it will come up likely in other parts of this conversation. But um, you said, Corey, that these start as political documents. I mean, this is yeah, the nature, some of, them do. Yeah. nature of being a magisterial reformation. The church is having to make itself known, explain itself to magistrates. Otherwise, they're going to get fried conceivably. Right. Um, but even this is what we were talking about yesterday in our department meeting. Not that people who are listening to this outside of us need to know this, but Nicaea is a starts out as a political document. I mean, the, the very notion of Trinitarian orthodoxy comes from, yes, a church council, but it's called by the emperor. And um, in some ways, Christianity would not have Trinitarian orthodoxy without the state. So what's happening in the 16th century is something that the Protestants are also working in that same vein. Um, yeah, that's right. And, 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 and the after effect then of the adoption of these confessions is that, you know, territorial rulers feel it sort of incumbent upon them to, you know, enforce these confessions in their territories. Mm. Um, I mean, to, 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 to greater and, and lesser degrees, right. which leads to its own conflicts. But, but there is a kind of understanding that this is a Lutheran territory. These are the Lutheran confessions. And, you know, if, if someone needs to enforce those commitments, well, the, the temporal magistrate is really the only one who has the, the kind of coercive authority that, that might allow that. Yeah. So, Miles, why don't you go next, since you got, you guys are very early as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the problem with, a, with being an American who is part of an Anglican province is that, of course, uh, we are a, a, an offspring of a magisterial church. And so authority doesn't work the same way in say North America as it does in <clears throat> Great Britain when it comes to the, the churches. So the, the Anglican church in North America um, confesses. So maybe the, the, the first thing to do is to say that the language that the province uses about its confessional documents from the reformation is that they are received and not confessed. So they're received and not confessed. And this is one of the sort of ticks of, a, of an Episcopal church, which is basically that, right, well, the church pre, has pre-existed the Reformation. It's just being reformed. These are being received. And so we're not confessing anything different. So the, the, what the Anglican Church in North America says it confesses is uh, the canonical books of the Old and New Testament, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper to be uh, the only two sacraments, the historic episcopate, um, and the four, uh, <clears throat> well, the, the, the three Catholic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Um, it affirms, doesn't confess, all I've just mentioned is what it confesses. It 
affirms the four uh, <clears throat> the four councils of the undivided church, and it uh, the language that it uses um, is that it affirms the Christological clarifications of the fifth, sixth, and seventh councils um, in as far as they are agreeable to Holy Scriptures. So it affirms those councils. It confesses the previous stuff. It receives the Book of Common Prayer uh, set forth by the Church of England in 1662, which if we have time, we should come back to because it is interesting that the only prayer book received is the 1662. And so that sort of means that all other prayer books are essentially viewed as kind of children of 62. Um, It also receives with the same authority of the prayer book, the ordinal that's attached to the prayer book. So how you use the prayer book is also as authoritative as the prayer book itself. um, If that makes uh, any sense. And it also receives the 39 articles of 1571 uh, in their, in the language that the province used, in their literal and grammatical sense, um, as expressing the Anglican response to doctrinal issues um, at the time of the Reformation. So what's interesting is that um, the language is different than, say, I think Lutherans or the Reformed would use. Uh, I don't, I've, I mean, I've wondered why does that, is it just because the province is a bunch of squishes uh, or is it because of, uh, we're, we're obviously, um, we're an Episcopal church. So lay people really don't confess, the bishops do. Um, so it's really the, the, the bishops who are doing the confessing um, in, in some senses. So that's, that's, that's the document, the, the kind of the documentary history of what Anglicans affirm, confess, and receive. And so the language is a little different. Uh, to the extent to which that language difference matters, I don't know. I would say it matters a lot. I think it would probably be better. It would be better for unity, um, actual unity, if we said we confessed, say, the articles. Um, because what, what, what you can do is, well, if you receive the articles, well, you don't really have to talk about them as much. And I get the feeling that the Reformed and Lutheran actually talk about their confessional documents quite a bit in scripture. The orders of worship, I think are sort of oriented around the confessional documents in ways that say the book of common prayer isn't oriented around the articles and certainly modern Anglican worship isn't. So that's, I know that's kind of a way of answering your question. Yeah. Do you just, so when was the first edition of the, of, of the articles? Of uh, the so Church of there's, there's 42 of them originally. And that's uh, what date roughly? Uh, I think that's uh, 1553. There's 42 of them. And in 58, they revised them down to 39. Um, so it's the accession of Elizabeth that really right. is what gives you the 39 articles. Uh, the, the Marian Church um, of England is still trying to to work those things out. Okay. So it's really not so, until the reign of Elizabeth that you have the 39 articles. But there weren't any before 53. Then, uh, I mean, well, they're they're, they're not com- compiled uh, before, right? Huh. Well, uh, well, they may they may put. Do they have some like a pseudo compilation in 1549? There's a pseudo prayer book that's put out hmm. 1549, but the articles aren't um, attached to it. Um, the, the articles are are in all the prayer books. I mean, that's one that's one of the things. In as much as um, the prayer book is received, the articles are too. They're kind of they. You don't detach them. And modern Lutheranism, does it work that way? I know the Lutheran service book has, does it have the, 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 yeah. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the most recent service book has the small catechism in it, hmm. um, but, but nothing else. Whereas I guess, a, a, you know, you would never put the confession in a hymnal if you're reformed. Um, so I don't know if that's an Anglican tick. Or no, not. we do have, a, I mean, the oh, current, yeah, in the um, the the recent Psalter hymnal that the OPC did with the URC, United Reformed Churches in North America, um, we have the Westminster Standards, so the Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechisms. But because this was a a joint endeavor, we had to include the three forms of unity, which are okay. the Belgic from fifteen sixty 
one, one. Mm -hmm. Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, and then Canons of Dort, 1619. Um, we also have the Apostles' Creed, the uh, Nicene Creed, and the, the Athanasian Creed. Um, so that's a lot to fit in a already right. fairly big, <laughs> big hymnal. Um, but, but that also indicates, you know, the, the Westminster standards are, are the latest, in some ways, the last gasp of, of Protestant orthodoxy, <clears throat> um, whether Lutheran reformed or, and it actually starts out Anglican. Um, mm -hmm. But there is a, those two earlier confessions. There's a, there's a Gallican confession for the French churches in 1559, I believe. There's a Scottish confession of 1560. Um, which doesn't really take off, and it's not the, that great a confession. I hope I don't offend any Scots, <laughs> which explains perhaps why the, Scot the Church of Scotland adopted the Westminster Confession as quickly as it did in, in 1546 or something like that, as soon as it came off the press. But the Westminster Assembly was an assembly of ministers called by Parliament during the Civil War. Another talk about starting as a political document. Um, and they produced the, the confession, the larger and shorter catechisms, um, but they never went anywhere in the Church of England, obviously. Um, and then the Scots embraced at least the confession. I'm still not sure what, what they did with the shorter catechism or the larger catechism. And but then, you know, in the rest of the 17th century, it's not until the Glorious Revolution that the Church of Scotland really becomes Presbyterian. Fine, well, and even then, it's still a little bit messy with the Episcopalians in Scotland. So um, it's really not until the 18th century, excuse me, that Presbyterians figure out how they're going to subscribe to these um, these confessions. So that's sort of the lay of the land about which confessional documents each of our traditions have um so i guess that that and miles you've already went into the, gone into the question about how they are subscribed and um and there's a, there are long and serious debates among presbyterians about this um in fact the first synod in philadelphia in the new world has a uh, adoption act of 1729 and they want to receive and adopt the confession and catechism. So they don't merely receive, but they also adopt, which is still the language that we use in our ordination vows for officers in the OPC. Um, and I'm, I'm sure the um, PCUSA used those throughout its history and may still use them, but What's striking to me, working on the current writing project I am now, is how many Presbyterians, both in Britain and America, opposed subscription. Because yeah. it seems to me, that, as much as I can figure it out, because of the Test Act in England, well, or, or the United Kingdom, which required someone to subscribe at least the Trinitarian parts of the 39 articles and also required someone to go to church once a year to receive communion in order to maintain your access to, I guess, university, political office and the like. I think that's part of the reason why Presbyterians in North America, but also in Ireland and Scotland, some, some in Scotland opposed uh, subscription because it was too much part of the, the English system. And so, and this is where you get, seems to, it also seems to be the case that this is where Presbyterians emerge as proto-Unitarians, at least in England, because they're not willing to subscribe the Trinity. This is a man-made creed imposed by the state, as it were. And there are Baptists and Presbyterians who are pushing back against that in the 18th century. But even in America, there's a big debate at the Synod of 1729 about whether there should be any subscription 
any adherence to creeds because aren't these man-made and isn't this a, a breach upon freedom of conscience? Um, so I think it's the political climate still of the established church in England and to some degree in Scotland that is the backdrop for for Presbyterian ambivalence about subscription. But that, what does that mean? Or is there are there similar sorts of dilemmas about subscription among Lutherans? Um, I mean, yeah, yes. I, I, I don't know if they have similar causes, although uh, politics is part of it. So, um, for example, um, once you get to the tail end of the 16th century and the formula of Concord is drafted, there are already territories, uh, say the Scandinavian countries, that, that say, you know, we, we've been Lutheran for a long time. We've been adhering to the Augsburg Confession. Um, but we didn't really have a say in the drafting mm. of this formula of Concord. Um, and we're, we're not sure that we want to adopt that. Um, and, and, and Denmark, uh, the, the, the Danish Lutherans never do. Um, and there is some kind of political maneuvering. Um, for example, um, Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth in England is corresponding uh, with the Danish king, very much discouraging him from adopting the formula of Concord because she thinks that it um, it's, it's too explicitly Lutheran. It, it kind of closes the loopholes that, that might've been found in something like the Augsburg confession hmm. and, and thus would prevent a greater pan-European Protestant unity. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Danes are largely persuaded by that. Um, and then certainly when you, you come to the North American context, um, I mean, the, the, the Augsburg Confession, again, pretty much everyone agrees on that. Pretty much everyone is using something like uh, the small catechism and, and perhaps a lesser extent, the large catechism. Um, but it's, it's going to be some time before these are actually accessible. You know, the, the full Book of Concord is accessible um, to, to a large audience, by which time there's already kind of a, you know, a, a Lutheran culture in in the colonies and later in the states that isn't necessarily receptive to just a, a wholesale adoption of of a quote-unquote imported hmm. uh, body of confessions is the phrase whether in german or, or or english come up among lutherans about man-made creeds is that a kind of um an idea that makes any sense to lutherans yeah um I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly it, it makes sense. Um, well, I guess more than that, is it one that people will use sometimes against too strict an adherence? Yeah. Um, I mean, not certainly not in confessional Lutheran circles. I mean, the, 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 there is, I mean, the, the phrase you'll hear repeated over and over again is the distinction between creeds and confessions on the one hand and, and scripture on the other hand. And, and there they don't use the German or the English, they use the Latin and refer to, you know, scripture is the, the Norman Normans, uh, the, the norming norm or the, the rule that sort of imposes itself. Uh, and the creeds and confessions are, are the normed norm, the, the, the mm. Norman normata. So, I mean, yeah. Parenthetically, just our pastor, he and I are teaching a course now on Presbyterianism, and he was using that we were talking about ah. Presbyterian doctrine and confessions uh, on Sunday. And he actually employed that phrasing, not yeah. to say that that's Presbyterian, but I think it's, it's something that does show up in reform circles and it's, it's easy then for Presbyterians to use it, that the yeah, notion of sure. norm, the norming norm and et cetera. Yeah. And so, uh, so there's definitely a kind of hierarchy and then certainly a recognition that, you know, the, the, the confessions can't claim any sort of, of divine direct inspiration or infallibility the way that scripture can. And, and so I think there would be a, you know, an acknowledgement that in that respect, sure, they're, they're man-made. But, but, I, but I never hear that phrase being mm -hmm. used as a kind of, in, in a sort of disparaging way. Mm -hmm. Cer certainly in, in mainline Lutheranism. Um, but, but I, but I don't hear it in, in confessional circles. So that you, uh, in, in our email exchanges before this, um, recording 
Cora, you brought up, um, do people receive or adopt or subscribe because this is what the Bible teaches or insofar as this is what the Bible teaches? And there's Latin phrases behind that. And, and Scott Clark, who teaches theology, historical theology and theology at Westminster, California, he, he uses, because I think in the Reformed circles, this has been a, on the continent, these have been debates as far as how to receive or use, appropriate the confessions. And I guess in the 19th century, there was much more of an effort to say, we receive, adopt, or subscribe, depending on which verb, um, insofar as hmm. the Bible teaches this. Right. And then the conservatives were always much more on the side of this because the Bible teaches this. So do you want to say more about that or how has that played out among Lutherans? Yeah, yeah, it, it has. And again, especially very much in, in the North American context. Um, so in, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, in the, the, the rite of ordination, uh, the, the ordinand is specifically asked, you know, do you confess you know, the, the, the unaltered Augsburg Confession, mm-hmm. and then all of the other confessional documents. Uh, and, and the scripted response is, um, let, me get, let me get it straight. You know, yes, I make these confessions my own because they are in accord with the word of God. So that, that sort of, you know, mm-hmm. I, I accept these, I confess these because they are uh, an accurate summary and exposition of what's found in scripture has, has historically been the norm. Um, but, but certainly in the, the modern and North American context, um, most obviously in, in mainline Lutheranism, there, there's been a hesitancy and, and ultimately just a, a complete rejection of that language in favor of, well, sure, th- these confessions are mine. I agree with them insofar as they agree with scripture, which implies there are probably some places in here that don't agree with scripture and, and I reserve the right to, mm-hmm. to, to reject, um, you know, any of those tenets um, without necessarily indicating which portions of the confessions might you object to. Um, and, and, I, and I can see how they're, they're kind of couching that as a, as a kind of intellectual humility, you know, Maybe our forebears got something wrong. We're not necessarily saying they did, but you know, should should we decide that they got something wrong? It's not in accord with Scripture. That then, of course, we, we don't have to believe that. Can you trace some of this difference to Pietism? I mean, I don't mean to blame Pietism, yeah. but and and it, I guess it, my impression of the LCMS is that it's self-selecting enough that you don't have a lot of Pietism in it, or if you do. They, they would keep quiet. But is, is the insofar as language something that may have emerged among people of a pietistic strain or not? Is that, is yeah. that just a cheap shot? Boy, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, to, 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 which, to which I can't offer an answer yeah, okay. with, any, with any confidence. Um, I mean, cert- certainly that there is a kind of pietistic reaction to what, what might've been perceived as kind of, you know, hair splitting and literalism and, and dogmatism. So, I mean, I could, I could see an argument being made that that pietism is just sort of reflexively opposed to, you know, what would be perceived as a, a rigid confessionalism. Mm-hmm. So might want to keep options open. Um, but, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't immediately know if there's any genealogy. Yeah. So we've managed to keep, miles quiet and we can keep we can, we can maintain that by asking a follow-up but but this gets at difference but no seriously miles you can you know. I, I i do want to ask miles a question um oh no <laughs> yeah well so uh, i mean I've, I've never looked into this but but there, there used to be these kind of rumors like uh, probably when i was an undergraduate you know ru- rumors about anglicans especially in england um and that there were these sort of secret signs by which you could tell who was, you know, low church, Anglo-Catholic, et cetera. Um, and, and one of the stories that I heard is that y- you would leave certain buttons 
on your cassock unbuttoned to indicate which of the 39 articles you, you were in disagreement with. You, you ever hear anything like that? Well, well, yeah. I mean, so I've, I've heard, I, I don't know if that one's true at all. I will say that you can tell, um, you can tell sort of a comfort with certain layers of churchmanship based on the, uh, how uh, much policing of, of cassocks is done. So for example, the, um, anyone who is sort of old high church or low church is always going to, I mean, if you're really serious about it, it's going to make sure that everybody has a circle circular collar. Um, because the, the squared off collar is typically more associated with Rome and, and Anglo Catholics. Um, so, uh, that, that's something that's true. You can kind of go into, uh, um, you can go into a parish and kind of, you don't even have to, you don't even have to look at the altar necessarily. You can sure, sure. Um, and so, and there's all sorts of, 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 of little ticks um, that, that you can find. I mean, what, you know, the, the kind of comfort with the color purple uh, is, is one of those things that, you know, uh, if a bishop is wearing a, a, you know, a purple shirt instead of a pink one or a red one, he's probably more comfortable uh, with, with, you know, being, at least some sort of person who's shading towards Anglo being an Anglo Catholic. So there's, there's all, yeah, there are all sorts of things. I, I, I'll, I'll jump, I'll just add one thing um, to discussion. One of the things I think is, is really important to conceive, especially at least historic Anglicanism is, is uh, so we've talked a lot about what pastors confess, what a church might confess in Anglicanism. So much of the church's energy, at least into the 19th century was based on what the monarch confessed. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that is something that obviously it does present a real problem for communions that identify as Anglican outside the British Isles, because uh, it would be it's a very worthwhile question. What does it even mean to be Anglican when you don't have a monarch attached to your church? Um, And there's, you know. Basically, the American church answered that by becoming the Protestant Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And at least until the 1830s, really, the, the, what you could look at uh, the, the Episcopal Church and basically say, well, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, kind of low church, Calvinistic-ish, um, kind of broad Protestant church. Um, after the Tractarian movement, that changes. But it, really, the only, at least in the United States' context, uh, for the first what, 200 years that Anglicans are on the continent, what makes them Anglican is first the monarch, and then in the 40, 50 years between the loss of the monarch and the Oxford movement, you have essentially them not really being anything other than a Protestant, a broad Protestant church that happens to have bishops. And so what that means for actually confessing uh, creeds or, or confessions themselves mm-hmm. is a really good question. And it's mm-hmm. something I think any self-effacing person in an Anglican province would have to look at and say, this is something we should probably talk about, but we don't. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, we, we, we call it a, a, a way of worshiping. Well, of course the problem is historically that way of worshiping <laughs> is, is attached to public symbols and the most notable one being the sovereign. And so when that's gone, what does it mean to be Anglican anymore? So I'm just feeding Daryl. They've just got all sorts of <laughs> No, but it's it's you're feeding me. Sure, this is what Presbyterians are up against, but it, there's also the the magic of it in the sense I was just in um Mer- Western Heritage today, uh teaching Coronation of Otto, and I'm showing students clips from Season one, episode five of The Crown, where Elizabeth is coronated in very similar ways. And they're using the language of of not just um, medieval kings, but also of Solomon and, and Nathan and Zadok, I guess, is the priest. Um, and it's just like, you know, this is this is amazing that in the 1950s, you still have the potential for a divine right monarch like this. And it, it does inform both the nation itself, but also the church. So um, it's fascinating, even though the Presbyterian side of me says, yowza, but. Um, <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, 
So that that's uh, another point that I wanted to, to, to raise about confessions um, is that, you know, in, in the context of, of, you know, the 1600s and the, the 1700s, um, Presbyterians in England are still very, very much in favor of an established church. They, they, you know, they just want it to be a Presbyterian church rather than an Episcopal church. Um, but, but in the American context, um, the, the, I, mean, I think you're the one who first mentioned this to me, and I was not aware of it. There's a, there's a revision of Westminster with respect to magistrates. Right. And so I, I don't I don't know that story. I mean, I, I've I've compared the text, but I, I don't know the story of how how that how that went down. And was there a sort of pushback from European Presbyterians saying, no, 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 you can't you can't just add and delete stuff at your pleasure. Um, and so what what was kind of going through the minds of, of American Presbyterians when they do this? Well, they were the people leading the church were very supportive of independence and the language of the Westminster confession on the magistrate, uh, it, it reeks of Constantine mm-hmm. that, that the, the magistrate can call, sit at a council, uh, make sure the church is, is conforming to God's word, etc. So it gives almost Episcopal kinds of powers to the magistrate. And it just, whenever I read that, I, I, I see Charlemagne, excuse me, Constantine at Nicaea, for instance, in the way that Eusebius describes it. So it, it wouldn't make any sense then to talk about, even though the Presbyterians like George Washington a lot, to think of him having that kind of power over the church if it were ever, wasn't going to be established, but say if it were. Sure, sure. So so my sense is that they, but even even in 1729 when they had with the adopting act, they recognized that Chapter 23 on the civil magistrate is a problem for at least the colonial um, society and church. So that it 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 comes pretty naturally, and I don't know of any opposition hmm. from any of the um, either old world churches, but even those who come to North America, say the Covenanters, a very small body um, connected to Geneva College, um, for instance, who are quite zealous about um, maintaining the the, the Solemn League and Covenant, say, and even before that, the the National Covenants of Scotland, that that is a proper relationship of of, uh, government, parliament, church and the people, that kind of covenanted nation, I've never seen any evidence that the covenanters thought, oh, you American Presbyterians, you messed all this up. And as if that's held over our heads, even though there would be some in Presbyterian circles who maybe lean theonomic, Mm -hmm. who would like to return to the pre-1789 understandings of the civil magistrate. And they themselves, even those in our communion say, yeah, these revisions weren't such a great idea, but it's not along the lines of, of subscription, but it's much more on the lines of what's a proper understanding of, of church and state. Does and, that- this, and this also makes me think then that maybe confession or subscription, excuse me, wasn't as important in a, in a way because you hmm. could change it, whatever, okay, you did it. Right. What's really important is what you believe about the civil magistrate. But... Um. Daryl, does the ARP, the, the Associate Reformed Presbyterians, do they retain uh, the old 23? Um, no, they changed it, but I don't remember when. And of course, they, as seceders, they would have had issues with the, the Scottish government and the crown even back then. But there were at least two sides of the seceders who were ambivalent about oaths and the Burgess oaths and all that. So they had all sorts of arguments among themselves about how to pr- proceed. But I, I think eventually they, they did make revisions. And if you look at, I mean, Corey, if you're interested in this as well, the, um, the three forms of unity also have language that isn't mm. like Westminster, but it does have a high view of the civil magistrate and the responsibility of the magistrate for uh, the good of the, 
of the people and supporting the church and the like. But that Article 36, I believe it is in the Belgic, does get revised by Kuiper, Abraham Kuyper's new mm. communion that emerges out of the state church. Again, because it, once you leave the state church behind, those articles no longer make sense. So there's another revision that did happen. Okay. Um, but it sounds like Lutherans don't revise. And that's impossible. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they've, they've tried. And this is why I, I find it fascinating because, well, I, I read that quip from the, the LCMS ordination vows that, that specifies, you know, the unaltered Augsburg confession, because hmm. since, <clears throat> since the, the Augsburg confession was, was drafted by, uh, well, largely by Philip Melanchthon with, with input from lots of others, um, he he sort of felt some liberty to to keep revising it over the years, um, and, and again, since since no one had sort of said in 1530 this this is now a binding confessional document on all Lutherans everywhere for all times, um, that th- there was no real controversy about his kind of revising it, um, but when the, the sort of 1540 and 1542 versions do have some some subtle but important changes to the, you know, the language of the Lord's Supper, for example. Um, and so by the end of the century, when they're deciding, okay, so which, which documents are our confessional documents, um, the, the 1540 version is right out mm. um, because it's, it's, it's too ambiguous. Well, uh, John John Calvin actually signs the 1540 edition mm-hmm. of the Oxford Confession, <laughs> so kind of kind of an honorary Lutheran. Um, but but then in the American context, um, Samuel Schmucker uh, in the 1850s also kind of rewrites the Augsburg Confession in, in a way that he thinks is more suitable for uh, an American context, and and it doesn't actually have to do with magistrates, but again, it has to do right. with things like the Lord's Supper and. Um, he, he thinks it's, it's just too sectarian, I mean, too, too Lutheran, and we ought to be open to, uh, you know, reformed bodies. Um, Princeton but, but, Seminary grad, yeah. by the no, yeah. no less, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and, and even his own uh, sort of general synod um, d- doesn't, doesn't buy into it. So it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Um, and, and in fact, if, if it does anything, it sort of really prompts other Lutherans in America to take a renewed interest in the 16th century confessions. Um, and, and I believe I'd have to check my dates, um, but this might be one of the spurs to an actual compilation of an English translation of the book of Concord. Hmm. Um, Cause, cause there just hasn't, hadn't been one yet. So that you don't hear many rumblings among LCMS folk for, for revision or even a new confession. One that's uh, yeah no um, so I mean the, the the two closest things there was a there was an English translation uh, put out maybe twenty years ago fifteen years ago it caused a little bit of controversy just over a couple of matters of translation yeah. whether they were the most accurate translations um, and every now and again there there is some rumbling not not for a revision of the existing confessions but you know maybe we do need to add something because in the 16th century, nobody was talking about women's ordination mm-hmm. and nobody was talking about all of these issues that, that divide, you know, even Lutheran churches today. So, so maybe we ought to, you know, add something else. It, it never goes anywhere. Um, but, but it, it, yeah, it, it keeps recurring. This may be an interesting kind of tie, at least between the three of us. There's um, the, the, the soteriological articulations of the 39 articles are more explicitly Calvinist, I think, than Lutheran. Um, but that seems probably to be where they kind of hewed to. In the middle of the 19th century, the, the Episcopal Church, a lot of Episcopal bishops had this argument where they basically said the way that the English articles work is that they're essentially a, a the word was used as a consultation with the Confession of Augsburg. Hmm. Hmm. And that was uh, Charles P. McElvain, who was actually a chaplain at West Point and also the Bishop of Ohio. He said, look, basically, the, the reason we don't have to play this same confessional game that Lutherans and the Reform do is confession is really 
about kind of where the highest authority is. And those other two Protestant groups have already kind of broken. They've stopped confessing what the Roman church says, and they started confessing the scriptures again. And so all we're doing is kind of consulting with these two confessions about kind of which one we're most comfortable with. So Mm. the reason why our language isn't the same as theirs is because they've done this already. And we're just kind of doing the English version of what the continent has already sort of so confession in this context, as McIlvain was explaining it, was really more of a, 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 a track switch from the track switch from Rome to what churches confess. And now it's scripture. And so we really don't have to confess anything new. We just have to consult with which parts of, hmm. of the Augsburg confession, because this is still this is going on in the, in the 16th century. The Westminster's not there yet. We just have to consult with Augsburg to see kind of which part we think is best, but they've done the hard work already. So that's the reason why this Anglican language is a little different. So one last question, we should wrap up here soon. Um, do Lutherans require laity to subscribe in any sense? Presbyterians mm. do not, okay. but Reformed churches do. So if you huh. become a member of a Christian Reformed, at least older, I'm not sure where they stand now, but the URC, I'm pretty sure they these are confessional membership communions, um, which, you know, takes takes it up a notch even beyond, say, the strict Presbyterians are, are willing to go. And I admire that um, position, and it also maybe goes with the um, the tradition in the Reformed churches of preaching the Heidelberg Catechism in the s- second service on Sunday. Hmm. I mean, so yeah, yeah. Um, so the laity is is expected to adopt this, and also they get to hear it once a year it preached. And kids, of course, are going to catechism classes. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. No. So this is a good question. I, I can't remember if we've touched on this before. I, I think maybe we did when we were talking about polity and conventions and that kind of thing. Um, but but technically, only clergy and congregations are are members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, and the laity are members of a congregation, hmm. which is a member of synod. Um, so. You know, congregations subscribe, clergy subscribe to, to the whole of the Book hmm. of Concord. Um, the the laity, when they when they go through the rite of confirmation, are are asked the question: um, Do you confess the doctrine of the Evangelical Lutheran Church drawn from scriptures as you've learned to know it from the Small Catechism? Hmm. So, so the idea is you, 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 know, you at least confess the truth of the small catechism, which is one of the confessional documents, and it's a kind of summary of right. all of them. Um, so, so, no, the laity aren't really required to sign on the dotted line for you know, the formula of Concord or anything like that. Although, I mean, um, I, I have no doubt that, that, that if a, a layman was you know, explicitly teaching uh contrary to one of the other confessions um yeah somebody would sit him down and 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 wag their finger at him um so miles how much do the 39 articles trickle down to the lady do you think uh i think probably now more than they have in in the preceding um few decades i think some of it's just because people were taking yeah, actually, what what you know the, the Anglican tradition says um, seriously, and I think there's also just kind of an awareness that Anglo-Catholicism as a project only has so long of a short shelf life in a Protestant communion. Um, uh, I think the, the the big problem, if you wanted to, to talk about a weakness, would be that <clears throat> it's really it's the bishops. So if you have a bishop who really is pushing the articles, you're going to hear about the articles, and your rector is sure going to hear about the articles. Um, and if you have a bishop who's not, hmm. it won't. Um, so I don't know if, it, if presbyteries work the same way or if kind of different yeah. districts work the same way in the Lutheran church, but it's very much sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the bishop determines a lot of how much the kind of the articles themselves get pushed into the identity of his given province or yeah. his given diocese, excuse me. 
I mean, for the OPC, not, not in any way to, to uh, try to um, glom onto the history of Lutheranism in the 16th century. Um, but our history, in, 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 there's a similar point that the history of Lutheranism and the way the confessions and catechisms rolled out was part of the founding moment, as it were. And our history is bound up with debates about subscription in the 20s and 30s during the Presbyterian controversy, which means that we're sort of just hardwired to take subscription seriously. So I don't know of in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, you can have um, strict or loose subscription kinds of language, perhaps. But in the OPC, you just don't talk that way, because right. if you do, then you're not really OPC. So <laughs> so the, the history here shapes it. But I'll be curious to see. I mean, we're coming up on our 100th anniversary in 1929, uh, which is really surprisingly uh, close. Um, how long that goes on? I don't don't know. I mean, we don't have any members from the original group of ministers or anything like that, but there's still pretty substantial institutional memory that keeps at least some of these things in place. Yeah, I, I, had, I had no idea until I kind of raised this as a topic for discussion, how, mm, how great the, the, the reformed literature on confessional subscription is. Hmm. Uh, that was just completely off my mm, radar. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I was I was kind of surprised to, to see how robust the, the the debate over that is and has been. Yeah. Well, we'll stop there. Um, but thanks to anyone listening. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining. And this has been another fruitful conversation. We didn't really disagree as much as we as I would like. Uh, I would like to find out at some point if we were to call a, a synod of our churches to, to think about a kind of um, church union, what would happen. But we can do that another time. But thanks for joining us, and we'll uh, hope to do this again, Lord willing. All right. Thanks, take guys. Care. Take care, Daryl.